Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Welcome to The Table, where we discuss issues of God and culture. I'm Mikhail Del Rosario. I'm the Cultural Engagement Manager here at the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. And our topic on The Table podcast today is urban apologetics. And I have a special guest with me today via Zoom. He is Chris Brooks. Chris is the senior pastor of Woodside Bible Church in Metro Detroit. And he's also got a show on Moody Radio called Equipped. And he's also a fellow graduate of the MA in Apologetics program at Biola University, my alma mater. Welcome to the show, Chris. Michelle, it's always great to be with you. I love the table and looking forward to our conversation. Yeah, you know, we had you on the show about six years ago now, talking about urban ministry in general with Daryl Bach. And we want to actually, first, I'll say for those who are watching and listening, if you want to check out that video or that uh, audio interview with Chris, it's episode 202. So you can check that out on your podcast app. But today we want to talk about urban apologetics and focusing on your work in urban apologetics, specifically a book that you wrote called Urban Apologetics. Yeah. And so the subtitle is Why the Gospel is Good News for the City. And there's a couple of things that I think we need to just clarify right off the bat for our listeners and our viewers. And first is, could you please define for us what urban apologetics is? Yeah, obviously it's the combination of two words, right? So I'll start with urban. You know, there's a number of ways that people use the word urban. Uh, Some refer to urban as specifically the inner city communities of our nation. Others refer to it as broadly the metropolitan areas of our nation. I would say wherever you find two things, density and diversity uh, would be an urban center. And these are important because uh, there are places where culture is made. There are also places where you find various worldviews that are often clashing and in tension with one another. And that's the need for the second word, and that is apologetics. And I refer to apologetics as giving answers to the questions that the culture is asking about the gospel. So many women, as they navigate through, um, through our world, are asking some pretty significant questions. And uh, when we give answers to those significant questions from the gospel, I believe we're doing apologetics. Even if we don't know we are, we're giving a, a defense. Uh, the word uh, apologia, as you know, comes from the New Testament, meaning to give a defense. And so as Christians, whenever we are uh, explaining why the gospel should be believed in contradistinction to a different worldview, we're doing apologetics. So evangelism is commending the faith to someone. Apologetics is defending the faith from uh, critics of uh, the gospel. Mm-hmm. Now, there's another uh combination of words to uh, ask you to define, because in your book you make reference to the urban Christian. Now, you already find urban. Put those two together, and who specifically are you writing to when you talk about the urban Christian? You know, in many ways, it's a similar uh, audience as the Apostle Paul. You know, our Bible is bookmarked by cities from beginning to end, from uh, Eden in the beginning to the New Jerusalem at the end. And it should not uh, go unnoticed that our New Testament is marked by cities as as well, from Rome to Corinth, Thessalonica to Galatia. All of these were metropolitan 
areas. These were cities uh, of influence and uh, and, and uh, regional impact. And so when I refer to urban Christians, I'm referring to those who live in these cities and communities that are influencing regions around them. The, the uh, cities like Dallas that you're at, Detroit, where I'm at, Atlanta, Los Angeles, New York, these places where there is density and diversity of worldview, Christians who are trying to navigate that landscape while remaining faithful to the scriptures. It's not easy, but it's possible. Mm-hmm. Now, I want to ask you how you've seen this play out in ministry, because in your book, you start out identifying what I think is is a good observation that most apologists aren't trained for urban ministry specifically, and yes. most urban Christians aren't trained in apologetics. So how do you yeah. see that uh, playing out? What What is the need for us to, to help people be better equipped in that regard? Yeah, it's an interesting phenomenon, but during the uh, 70s, what you found is a lot of churches, churches jettisoning the city, in particular, the major urban areas of our of our country to the suburbs. Suburban life offered uh, what appeared to be affluence uh, and affinity groups, and it was a church growth strategy to launch churches in places where there was homogenous groups that came together around shared uh, ideas and values, and it worked. It grew a number of mega churches. As a matter of fact, it gave birth in the 80s to the mega church movement. And so consequently, most um, apologetics, theological work, ministry work was aimed at answering the questions that those who live in the suburbs of these major metropolitan areas had about the gospel. While many within the uh, major urban areas of our country grew more and more secular in their uh, ideology and their worldviews about significant areas of our of our lives, from identity uh, to social issues, and uh, we're seeing it now. We're seeing uh, a massive secularization in our urban centers, while um, the gospel uh, continues to spread out more and more to suburban areas, and so. When I wrote the book, I really wanted to say that we need apologists who have boots on the ground in our urban centers and who are hearing those questions so Mm -hmm. they can answer those questions rightly. Mm -hmm. So paint us a picture of the kinds of people uh, we might meet if we begin to engage in an urban context. Um, It's not just, as you said, there's a lot of diversity, so it's not just one kind of person. Um, Paint us a picture of the kinds of people we might meet. Yeah, well, you know, you, you're typically talking, our urban centers are younger, so you typically are talking about a younger uh, millennial type who probably has a young family. Uh, they have a lot of uh, questions that are forming around what to believe. They uh, have authority that is grounded and rooted within themselves. So ultimate authority on the major questions of life is really based more off of how you feel Uh, than some objective truth outside of yourself. Uh, These are uh, people who are synchronistic, meaning uh, there's no problem with grabbing bits and pieces of various worldviews and trying to mold them together into some unique individualistic spirituality Mm -hmm. as opposed to accepting one worldview stem to stern. 
Um, these are people, obviously, who are uh, very career driven um, and uh, again, coming from diverse places of the world and uh, enjoying not only ethnic diversity, uh, but enjoying diversity of thought as well. Mm-hmm. Now, for a lot of apologists who went through uh, a variety of programs that we have, like the apologetics program at Biola that you and I both did, um, our yeah. MA program here in apologetics at Dallas Seminary, there is uh, there's a certain group of person that has an affinity for what I want to call the traditional kinds of apologetics, the classical apologetics yeah. model. They really are wondering, is Christianity rational? Is, um, is the universe something that's always existed and, and, and things like that? But as we move into the urban context, we find people have um, a little bit different um, concerns that are not so immediate in terms yeah. of the rationality of Christianity. Um, t- talk to us a little bit about that and how that affects the way we need to approach um, people in urban settings. Yeah, I think that some of it is a matter, Mikhail, of, of priority, uh, difference of priority, maybe not necessarily difference of category, but difference of priority. I would say right at the top, uh, when you step into most urban centers, is the question of identity. Uh, who has the right to define who I am? Uh, where do I find authority for that? Uh, secondly, is the question of truth. Um, obviously, uh, plural plural. Uh, plurality uh, ends up uh, leading us to a place of of uh, certainly feeling like we can't discriminate against uh, various worldviews, and so uh, that's a, a big question: Is there any one truth, or is uh, all truth uh, basically equal? But I think that in addition to that, in particular, when you start talking about ethnic minority groups, is Two questions. One is a question of where does my cultural identity uh, fit into um, my religious beliefs? So what many would call social identity theory is a really big issue um, that we as Christians need to better understand. Certainly Paul did. And then finally, I would say pain, suffering, and evil. Dealing with the problem of pain, suffering, and evil, I'm african-american and this has been a hallmark of Mm -hmm. gospel music uh spirituals that date back to the days of slavery is how do we process the suffering that we're seeing in this world in light of the gospel and we have to be able to give answers to that Mm -hmm. yeah think about the uh the old slave songs and gospel music yes. uh, bleeding into the blues and rock and roll and jazz. And uh, you really uh, see that, you hear that coming out yeah. in, in the popular music. Um, sometimes we call that cries from the public square. You know, if we keep our ear to the ground, um, what are we hearing, the, the cries that people have? You mentioned- I think I would also say, Mikhail, if I can mention one more thing. I think uh, post-George Floyd in particular, mm-hmm. there is a deep suspicion for evangelicalism mm-hmm. uh, and uh, a questioning of whether or not that term is a religious category or more of a partisan or political category. Mm-hmm. It's become very much a hot button and controversial uh, terminology uh, to use. And so I think that's another really critical question that we have to be able to address. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And when people hear preaching, are they hearing it through that that lens? Um, are they bringing yeah. some of that political um, uh, lens to what they're hearing? Now, you mentioned that we need to have preacher poets. 
Talk to us about that um, as a way of engagement in the city. Yeah, I think uh, the, the city is a place of arts. Mm-hmm. You know, if you remember the Apostle Paul, when he's going through Athens, he talks about their poets. And uh, I think in many ways, uh, our urban areas are places where art is created and formed. Uh, your urban centers are not just consumers of culture, they're creators mm-hmm. of cultural artifacts as well. And so if we're going to speak to the heart of young adults, if we're going to speak to the heart of diverse communities, we have to be able to do it with not only great content, but we have to be able to do it in the language of the heart. Mm-hmm. And I think poetry being able to uh, say things in memorable ways that answer the questions of the head and the longing of the heart is absolutely critical. If it doesn't satisfy the soul, it probably won't be believed in in the head. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so critical to connect both the head and the heart together, as yes. most people are not... Um, first wondering about the reasonableness of Christianity nowadays before they are wondering about the relevance of Christianity. Um, Yeah, I was talking to a friend of mine who comes from a different ethnic group but lives in this this, uh, urban center that I'm in, and he was just sharing that the culture that he comes from, if a person is not speaking with passion and poetry, Mm -hmm. they're not even listened to. They're not Mm -hmm. given an audience. And so knowing, um, as Paul did again, Acts 17 in Athens, knowing the poetry of the community that you're in is absolutely critical. But relevance uh, should not come before rightness. We want to be right and then relevant, meaning Mm -hmm. that we want to make sure that we're biblical before we're contextual. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Talk about some of these issues and areas where people need to see the relevance of the gospel. What's what's prime in their minds in terms of these areas? Yeah, I think that um, we're as Christians trained to make sure we're given the right answers, right? Uh, This is why you and I were drawn to apologetics. We want to make sure that we're answering questions rightly, but equally as important as answering the right questions. So that means that we need to listen to what questions people are asking of the gospel. We talked about some of the categories uh, just a moment ago, but it's so important that our hearts are attuned to the issues that they're that they're concerned about. Uh, because if we're at answering questions that they're not concerned about, then we'll we'll miss the moment. So, for example, Mormonism has not been huge in um, in the the city that I ministered uh, in Detroit. It's not that it's absent. It just has not been a huge presence. So if I built my apologetics primarily in answering the questions of Mormonism, for example, um, I may do a great job at um, addressing the major issues there of giving a clear and reasonable gospel response. But if that's not the core issue that folks are dealing with, if if I'm not, for example, in my community, dealing with the nation of Islam, Mm -hmm. if I'm not dealing with uh, black Hebrew Israelites, Mm -hmm. if I'm not dealing with um, the five percenters, if I'm not addressing those urban alternative religious movements, then I'm missing an entire uh, community. And so I think it's important for us to know what are the alternative religious options available in that community, and what are the uh, relevant questions 
that they're asking that maybe other communities aren't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I liked how you mentioned all those different uh, new religious movements that we see sprouting up and really gaining ground uh, among certain yeah. demographics. Um, for those who are listening and watching, I did a show recently with Vocab Malone on engaging with the black Hebrew Israelites. So I'd encourage you to check that out in our archive. Um, it's not a world uh, religion or a um, new religious movement, rather, that, that many people outside the African-American community have heard about. I know I certainly didn't hear about it until I started talking to my black friends who could hardly get their hair cut without someone trying to recruit them into this movement. Absolutely. So, and, and, you know, the methodology of most of uh, what I would call a black thought religion uh, that tries to recenter um, um, African-Americans, in particular Africans more broadly, uh, in the centerpiece of uh, the world, the, the narrative of the world, uh, the methodology of engagement typically is to set up camp outside of churches and to use that gathering on Sunday morning as an opportunity to try to use a bully pulpit to attract people who may be disenchanted or hurt or wounded by the church to their worldview or maybe at a place where they're not getting their questions answered. That's always been the methodology dating back to the 40s and 50s and 60s. You can uh, date it back uh, that to uh, a number of uh, thought leaders during that time. Uh, We have to be prepared for that. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about uh, the Jesus model that you mentioned in your book. We'll talk about that yeah. model and then, and then a few strategies on how to actually engage. But talk about the Jesus model for a bit. Yeah. So, you know, I think that Jesus did a great job of answering uh, questions that people had. You know, as he modeled ministry for us, he answered questions and he was able to answer questions with questions that helped to pull out of the person, not just what they were asking, but why they were Mm -hmm. asking the question that they were asking. In other words, Jesus took both the questions and the questioner very seriously. And we need to do that as well. Again, my concern, I am very much pro-theological training. I'm very much pro-apologetic training. But I do believe that one of the risks that we have is to have prepackaged answers to questions that sometimes don't uh, take into consideration the uniqueness of the individual uh, Mm -hmm. that's asking those questions uh, or or, uh, the unique reasons why someone may be asking a question. So, for example, if you and I are in a conversation with someone and they ask, is homosexuality right or wrong? We may be tempted to immediately give a prepackaged answer. Well, let's consider some of the reasons why someone may be asking that question. Maybe it's a parent who has a child who's just opened up to them. Mom, dad, I think I might be gay. Mm-hmm. How we answer that question may be different than if somebody themselves are struggling with questions about their own sexual identity. And that may be altogether different than the way we answer somebody who is an activist Mm -hmm. from the LGBTQ community. So knowing the motivation behind the question and the questioner themselves is absolutely essential. Jesus modeled this, and I think we need to as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. We we see that Jesus spoke truth, but he also loved people well. And part yes. of that was um, showing his heart of compassion for them. And so I like to say... You know, you think of John one seventeen. the law came through Moses, but grace and truth mm-hmm. have come through Jesus Christ. And so when we think about 
uh, this grace and truth. We don't have to feel the pressure of seeing these virtues as mutually exclusive. We don't have to have uh, such an extreme vision of grace that it is truthless grace, nor do we have to have such a uh, extreme vision of truth that it is graceless truth. Mm-hmm. We need to have uh, the ability again to think critically, to live compassionately, and to speak the truth in love. Yes. Yeah. I like to say apologetics is engaging with courage and compassion. Yes. And that's the kind of apologetics that Jesus modeled and he called us to, um, not the kind that, uh, uh, that turns people off to the gospel because of a, a method that doesn't reflect the heart of Christ. Yeah. So let's talk about um, some different strategies now for employing now that we're going to engage with the heart of an ambassador, engage like Jesus did using the Jesus model. You mentioned three strategies in your book, and they all begin with the letter B. And uh, let's let's start with the, the first one, which is the Boulevard strategy. Talk to us about that. Yeah, I kind of get this uh, from Spurgeon. Spurgeon said that uh, we as Christians need to find any topic and make a beeline to the gospel or to the cross. Um, so often when we are uh, sharing Christ with people, uh, it may start off with talking about something other than uh, the gospel specifically. Uh, but those who are wise will take whatever the starting point of a conversation is about parenting or marriage and relationships or the economy and uh, figure a way to uh, use that as an opportunity to share how your faith in Christ has uh, influenced your view on that perspective. In other words, the boulevards to gospel-centered conversation may be grounded in contemporary issues or topics, but we have to use those issues and topics as pathways to the cross. Mm -hmm. This episode is brought to you by The Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh. That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on the Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. Yeah, we want to see people go from the word to life. Sometimes we help. We have to help them see that they can go from life to the word. Yeah, and, uh, absolutely. I mean, I think about one of the great conversations in our nation right now is about um, war and mm-hmm. uh, how should Christians feel about war. And everybody has an opinion about war and whether or not we should engage or not. I think Christians should use this as an opportunity to share how the gospel influences their vision in this area, or the economy. Who's not talking about gas prices and the mm-hmm. price of milk and bread and inflation and all of these things? Um, we need to use these as opportunities to show uh, how the gospel speaks to uh, issues that are current, relevant, and contemporary in our world. Yeah. 
I love how Daryl Bach calls that being a switch hitter, that we can go from the word to somebody's actual circumstances, but then also go from their circumstances back to the word. So yeah. that's the boulevard strategy. Tell us about the next one, which is called the belief strategy. Yeah, I think that so often we assume that just because someone shares a label, that that means we know what they believe. Mm. If I were to tell you that I was a Christian, what does that really tell you about me? Uh, maybe it tells you that I believe that Christ is Lord of all, uh, but it may not tell you as much about me as you think. It's important for you to understand, what does that mean to you, Chris? Uh, how do you define Christian? Uh, one of my uh, favorite books is The Kingdom of the Cult, first edition, Kingdom mm -hmm. of the Cults, rather, uh, first edition, fourth edition. And uh, in chapter two of that, it's called Scaling the Language Barrier, Scaling the Language Barrier. And, uh, and it's there where... The warning is given that so often we can use the same terminology with totally different meanings. Mm -hmm. I'll never forget an evangelistic conversation I had, Mikkel, with someone from uh, the Church of Scientology. Mm -hmm. And we both use the term uh, God, both use the term gospel, both use the term heaven and salvation, but had radically different meanings to each of those words. So by belief, what I simply mean is that we need to ask people beyond labels and titles what their actual beliefs are about how a person uh, is uh, saved, about the origin of the world, mm -hmm. about the current condition of men, about pain, suffering, and evil. How do we know truth? We need to ask them those questions so that we can know what they actually believe. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that goes back to what we were saying earlier about listening and the importance of not answering a question that someone's not asking, but listening yes. to see what is their actual question. Why do they ask a question like that? What's behind it? Um, so that we don't, so that we treat the person as a person. It's a way to love them. It's Absolutely. A way to, to, uh, but again, them. it's also an acknowledgement of the fact that uh, we live in a world in which uh, authority increasingly so in a secular society is grounded in the individual. Mm -hmm. So in a world like that, in which people very rarely accept any worldview from um, naturalism to theism to polytheism, uh, stem to stern, but typically are synchronistic where they're pulling together uh, bits and pieces from various worldviews, it becomes absolutely essential in a hyper-individualistic culture to ask good questions so that we can know what this person mm -hmm. actually believes. Right. Instead of approaching the person as a Buddhist or as a Muslim, be like, oh yeah, I read a little, I read a little pamphlet on Buddhism and what that was about. You know, <laughs> um, there's so many definitions of what it means to be a Buddhist, depending on who you talk to. Are they Vietnamese refugee? Are they uh, Chinese? Are they from a variety of different um, yes. ways to practice Buddhism? Right. So that's the belief strategy. And the final B that you talked about is the word barriers, the barriers strategy. Tell us about that. Yeah. Yeah, so with that, um, maybe you know someone's belief. Maybe you've been talking about the economy and war and social issues for a long time, and you're saying, man, it just does not seem like they're even interested in having a conversation about Jesus. Um, more often than not, it's because there's a barrier there. Uh, I start with the assumption uh, that most people have uh, been exposed to the gospel in the West. 
doesn't mean that they have a thorough understanding of it, but it means that predominantly uh, in most of our urban centers, there has been some expression of Christianity. Uh, churches, Bibles, uh, most of the West is not unreached, if you will, uh, or a frontier people group. And so what that means is that quite often people have uh, come to a conscious decision of why they're not following Christ. So what I will often ask is, um, what has kept you from believing in Jesus? Or what turns you off about Christianity? Hmm. Uh, people are willing to be honest about it more and more. Uh, people are willing to share why they're not a Christian or why they've rejected the gospel. And once you know the reasons why, you can address those specific issues as opposed to making assumptions of why and maybe wasting a ton of time that could have been better used addressing their real heart concerns. Mm-hmm. So those three strategies are really good to keep in mind. One, we approach with the Jesus model, and then we yes. employ these strategies to make sure we're listening to the heart of the person. We're connecting the gospel to things they're already going through. And then we're, we're asking them, that's what a great question to ask someone. What turns you off to Christianity? I, I bet yeah. that would surprise someone. Uh, to have somebody ask that question and be willing to listen and not just, you know, interrupt them and try to try to correct them or tell them why uh, what they're saying isn't right. Um, we need to just, you know, turn that truth meter down and uh, save it for a little bit. Yes. And uh, the brand new apologist often will just want to jump to, now I have to defend the entire contents of the whole Christian worldview because <laughs> someone just expressed a different view than mine. So we need to just save that and employ these strategies so we can be more effective um, ambassadors for yeah. Jesus. Let's touch on a few of these issues that you've talked about in the book. Specifically, there's a variety of chapters that talk about some of these issues that you've mentioned. And the first one, you already had something to say about areas of authority and morality and ethics. How should we approach the area of ethics in urban settings? Yeah, I think that we need to uh, know that the foundation of every question um, that we're asked, just about every question, is who has the right to define right and wrong? Mm-hmm. So often questions come up uh, uh, that are framed in uh, moral terms. That was wrong what the legislation they just passed. Mm -hmm. That was uh, right or good in the response that was just given. Our question needs to be, who has the right to define that? How do we know what is right and what is wrong? I think so often uh, men and women use those terms uh, think in those categories without recognizing that we can't even get to a place of, of morality unless we first posit a moral law, that there is a such thing as a moral law, which leads to a, a bigger question. If there is a moral law, then there must be a moral law giver. Who is that moral law giver? And so, so often, again, going back to the question I used earlier, if someone says to me or asks a question, is homosexuality right or wrong? I'll ask them the question, is anything right or wrong? How do we determine right from wrong? Uh, and it seems to me, Mikhail, that there's two prevailing options. That either right and wrong is determined on the individual level, that you and I get a chance to personally define right and wrong. And the problem with that option is that your definition of right 
and wrong may be in conflict with mine. It produces utter chaos. It cannot produce an ordered society if right and wrong is defined seven billion different ways. Mm-hmm. So the second option is that there is uh, a moral authority that is greater than us, that has given us an objective morality that we need to adhere to, a uh, moral authority that arbitrates between you and I, that is not just individualistic, but there's something intrinsic about right and wrong. So we know that to um, hurt an innocent person, that to take what does not belong to you, that to be abusive to a person, discriminatory to a mm-hmm. person in a, uh, a mean-spirited way, all of these things we know in our hearts are wrong, and that's because there is objective morality apart from our opinion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, one thing a lot of people who um, hear voices that uh, Christians who hear voices they perceive to be anti-Christian will automatically push back on them without hearing what is the heart behind that yeah. outcry. And sometimes at the heart of that outcry is actually a great truth about what's wrong with the world, that there is injustice, yeah. that there is something wrong with our world. And what a great place to, to start because um, we, we can find that common ground and agree that the world isn't the way things should be. And, yeah, uh, I think it's important for us to remember, and it's been famously said by, by uh, several philosophers of the past, that before we can deconstruct a particular worldview, we must first find out what makes it attractive to the adherents of mm-hmm. that worldview. What makes this attractive? What makes this line of thinking appealing? And uh, like you said, sometimes underneath it all, there may be some virtue that is redeemable that has somehow been perverted in our thinking. And, uh, and what we need to do is not at all uh, disassociate from the virtue that is redeemable, but to help uh, men and women to think rightly about the application of that. Mm-hmm. Let's move on to the next uh, issue I want to ask you to comment on. You say in your book, abortion is a distinctly urban issue. Minority women and children have been the most harmed. How do you begin to engage in this area? Yeah, I think understanding history is really important when it comes to any apologetics. Knowing church history, um, knowing the history of the particular people group that you're talking to, that's absolutely critical. I would argue, Mikhail, I don't know how you feel about this, but probably top three things that has helped me as an apologist is knowing the biblical languages, and the uh, accompanying biblical uh, worldview. Uh, secondly, is knowing how to think rightly, having a philosophical framework that helps me to uh, think. And then thirdly, knowing history uh, well. And so when you know the history of abortion, you know that Margaret Singer, who is uh, the, uh, the founder of Planned Parenthood uh, and one of the uh, really founders of the abortion movement, uh, specifically wanted to rid the world of the poor, those that she felt were a drain on society, and uh, racial minorities. Uh, she didn't hide that fact. And if we want to fast forward in a contemporary way, 75% of abortion clinics are in communities of color. Um, and so that's why I argue that this is a distinctly minority issue that we need to make sure we address. 
I would add, though, that it's also a distinctly Christian issue. <clears throat> About 60% of the women who uh, have abortions in our country profess to be uh, Christian. Now, that's broadly. Either Protestant or Catholic profess to be a Christian. We, more than any other religious group, including atheists, are more prone to abortion. We need to ask ourselves why uh, mm. that is. Uh, but we also need to ask ourselves, how do we respond to a movement that has openly targeted minority communities? Mm -hmm. A third area to ask you about as we walk into these urban settings is uh, the issue of broken families. How does yeah. an urban apologist speak into that space? Yeah, I think that every urban community that I know, in particular those that are experiencing multi-generational economic challenges, are looking for stability. How do we close the wealth gap? How do we produce uh, flourishing, community flourishing? And I think the answer from a biblical and sociological perspective has always come back to the family unit. It is healthy families that build healthy communities. As a matter of fact, you can't even build a strong church on the back of weak families. And so uh, this becomes a huge apologetic issue because in the beginning, God created uh, the heavens and the earth, and then he populated it with uh, male and female. And then he said uh, that it was not good for the man to be alone. And uh, he created the institution <clears throat> excuse me, of marriage, and he tells them to be fruitful and multiply. And it's from that covenant of marriage that children add to that fruitfulness and uh, produce ordered society. The family unit also is the key to limited government. You know, in many urban areas, government has an outsized role in, uh, in those communities. And government will never be able to be kept in check wherever there are weak families, because strong families are the counterbalance to large governmental agencies. Hmm. Well, there's so many places we could go here. And in fact, when you do enter into an urban uh, setting to do ministry, there are many places that you go and, uh, and that you have yes. to go. But let me uh, ask you this. You specifically mentioned African-American um, uh, yes. engagement. Um, and you say in your book, many African-Americans reject Christianity on the basis of its ethos, not its doctrine. Unpack that for us, and how can that insight help us approach um, African-Americans in the urban setting? Yeah, I think that uh, most of us re reject any place that we feel unwelcomed in. And uh, for many African-Americans, evangelicalism in particular has felt very unwelcoming. It is uh, felt uh, as if it's a, a predominantly white space in which we are visitors in, but not necessarily uh, brothers and sisters at the table jointly with. And so um, if music is, is, is shaped by one dominant group, if uh, uh, the issues that are being addressed are uh, assumed by one dominant group, if methodology of ministry is determined by one dominant group, then it is often to the alienation of other groups. And so many minorities have rejected Christianity, not because of a deep theological uh, dive, 
but because they just have not felt at home or welcomed in churches. But again, this goes back, Mikhail, to um, this homogenous unit principle and back to the church growth movement. Because in the church growth movement, it was all about affinity groups, getting groups of people together that had same interests, uh, same backgrounds. They shopped at the same place, liked the same music, enjoyed the same food, and that would grow a church. So in that type of philosophy, diversity is an enemy. Hmm. Diversity of thought, diversity of background. And so uh, so often, we, instead of, like the uh, early Christians, going into the Gentile people groups of the world and building ethnically diverse churches, what we have done is build uh, churches that are um, uh, reflective of one culture and uh, much to the alienation of others. Mm-hmm. Well, our, our time is, is rapidly uh, going away from us. There's one more question I want to ask you, and this was a major sure. frustration of mine when I was a brand new apologist and I was trained on how to respond and give answers to challenges that people had. And then I began to encounter people who really didn't have any arguments or objections to Christianity that were there to refute. They just didn't like Christianity. They weren't really even sure why, but it wasn't for them. Uh, How would you advise someone to uh, engage in that situation? Yeah, I mean, I think that we we have to build relational bridges. There's nothing uh, like breaking bread at the table. Mm -hmm. I think we need to take meals far more seriously than what we do. I would encourage uh, people to pick up Tim Chester's book called A Meal with Jesus, Hmm. Uh, how uh, sitting down over uh, food is about more than just food. I think we need to have meals on a mission where we are building relationships uh, with people so that we can understand what the offense is and why the objection. Uh, But then I think we also have to understand, in particular in urban communities, that there's been a lot of propaganda, a lot of of, uh, false history there. For example, among African-Americans, there's a broad assumption that Christianity was a part of slavery, that uh, we became Christians as a part of our indoctrination process, as a part of enslavement. When the truth of the matter is, is more and more historic research is confirming the fact that Christianity predates slavery, that well before the transatlantic slave trade, Christians in West Africa and Ethiopia and East Africa were uh, present and impacting the gospel. For example, Martin Luther, as he thought about how do we live out biblical Christianity, consulted with a friend who was an Ethiopian deacon. He went and visited him twice. Michael, the deacon, they exchanged letters and uh, much of the Protestant Reformation thought, what we would call the solas, came out of Christian African thinking. Hmm. And so I think that what we have to be able to do is address false understandings of the history of the Christian faith that may drive people away. I think ultimately we need to do our best to be a personal witness so that even if someone has questions about the ethos of Christianity, they can look at you and me and say, but you are different Mm -hmm. as a representative of Christ. Mm, I love that. Thanks so much for sharing that, Chris. This is a chance for you to throw out your socials, and uh, how can people get in contact with you? 
Yeah, well, folks can uh, find me on uh, Twitter, uh, Pastor Chris there. Uh, you can always uh, check us out at my church's website, woodsidebible.org, or Monday through Friday, equippedradio.org, equippedradio.org. Uh, I have the daily talk show there where we're equipping Christians to more effectively live, share, and defend their faith. Awesome. If you'd like to continue the conversation with Chris, go ahead and hit him up on his socials or his website. If you want to continue the conversation with me, you can at me at Twitter at ApologeticsGuy. I'm also ApologeticsGuy on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Um, Chris, thank you so much. It was such a pleasure to have you on the show here today. Always a joy. Well, thank you. And we thank you, too, for tuning in and watching or listening to The Table podcast today. We hope that you will join us on The Table next time. I'm Dr. Mikel Del Rosario, and we hope we'll see you again next time on The Table, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Thanks for listening to The Table podcast. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well.